not see this coming And welcome back to another episode of the Year of Polygamy podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay. Today, we are talking about a really exciting topic, uh, the Council of 50, which we've sort of kicked around, we've alluded to in this whole series. And now we're going to sort of dig into what the Council of 50 is, what it means, and how it impacts the topics that we discuss on this podcast. So uh, I'm bringing back a return guest, Christina Rossetti. Can you say hello? Hello. Christina, you've become a popular guest. People request to have you back. I think they like having a Catholic talking about Mormonism. I know. So weird. Why Why are you letting Gentiles on your show? I think we're still trying to get in the baptismal waters. I mean, that's fair. <laughs> uh, do you want to tell us about yourself for those who have never heard about you before? I am a doctoral candidate in the Department of Religious Studies at University of California, Riverside, and I study Mormonism and their lines of authority and how different Mormon groups interact and all that good stuff. So what I'm thinking is if you guys really want Christina to not be a Gentile anymore, <laughs> write your testimony in the cover of a Book of Mormon and just send it over to her. In fact, when you see her at Sunstone, just give her a Book of Mormon with a testimony, and I think that would really be helpful. 100% will get me in the water way faster. Also, on uh, we're bringing on a first-time guest, Jedediah Rogers. Jedediah, can you say hello? Hello. Hey, thanks for having me. I think we only brought you on because you've got a cool name like Jedediah. It just sounds yeah. right for this podcast. I, I do. And most of, uh, if your listeners do not know who Jedediah Smith is, they should. He was a very cool Western sort of explorer. So I was named after when my mom was was reading uh, the biography of Jedediah Smith by Dale Morgan when I was born. So she decided Jedediah would be a good name. That's so amazing. It's kind, of, it's kind of appropriate because I study Western history. I'm co-editor of the Utah Historical Quarterly, which is the state's kind of official history journal. And, um, and I study, you know, in environmental history. I'm an environmental historian of the West, and including Mormon environmental history. And uh, have also dabbled in, or dab more than dabbled in the Council of Fifty. So this is fun. Now, when you say dabbled in the Council of Fifty, does that mean that you are like an actual member, and it's still the secret shadow yeah. government of Utah, like some people think that it might be? Like, are I we know, talking like, to? Like, are you going to blood atone us right now? I just want to make sure that we're okay. No, I'm, one of, I'm one. Of, I could. I could. I would be one of the good. Like, I wouldn't be the blood atonement guy on the Council of Fifty. I don't think, mm. but. I have never been invited. So, I'm are you not. like the guy that brings like the the coffee? Like, what wh what guy are you in the Council of Fifty? Probably some coffee and some caffeinated teas. Yeah, and I would probably petition for more of a democracy <laughs> than theocracy, and just you know, they're some like Jedediah. We get it. Stop talking about the environment. It's fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We we brushed over something really. Look, who's the blood atonement guy? If it's not you. <laughs> uh, well there were yeah there were a couple john d lee was was oh well definitely john blood atonement guy that, we fixed that though john that d lee was framed okay mm -hmm. um let's 
back up and let's start I was talking about Council 50 because I really could make fun of uh, the Council 50 and Jedediah's name the entire podcast but I will not do that let's let's walk it in from the beginning so let's set up what is actually let's talk about why we're talking about the Council of 50 so some recent things have been published in the last few years there's been a lot of buzz who wants to walk us into what's been going on with these minutes I can start yeah, I can start. Uh, so the Council 50, the actual minutes from the Council 50 meeting were just released to the public um, a few months ago in the Joseph Smith papers, released a transcript of all the minutes. And then a few days ago, they were, or last week, they were released online. So you don't have to buy the giant Joseph Smith papers volume. You can read them all online. And a lot of people have asked um, or suggested that they've been redacted or things have been removed intentionally. And they're not redacted, and they're very true to the minutes. And the Joseph Smith Papers Project does an incredible job with meeting minutes and transcription. And so it became, it kind of came back as this big buzzing thing of the Council of 50 Minutes are released and we can all read them now. And the reason that was a big deal, at least for the Joseph Smith Papers, is the Church History Library has a policy that they don't release things that are sacred or confidential. And at the time, the Council of 50 was a confidential meeting. And so these were confidential minutes, but the church chose to publish them anyway because of their importance for Mormon history, their importance for the history of the American West, and because they're part of the Nauvoo era and they extend into the Salt Lake Valley. And so right now is a really important time to be talking about them because they're available for anyone to read. Yeah, so... You know, there was always some question, I think, when the Joseph Smith Papers project got off the ground more than a decade ago, whether the Council of 50 Minutes would be part of that collection, because they certainly deserve to be. They have, it was, uh, Council of 50 was organized by Joseph Smith and has Joseph Smith's hands all over it. So it made sense to make it part of that body of record. And it's just a relief that the powers that be made, made that possible to release these minutes and really what we're talking about are the minutes from the Nauvoo period. And we can talk about this later, but the Council of 50, of course, continued on beyond um, Nauvoo. And so, but what we're, what has been released over the last six months to a year are the, are the minutes from the Nauvoo period from 1844 to 1846. Yeah, which is, seems like such a short time, but there, I mean, how big is this book? It's a, uh, it's a pretty big book. So we're talking a lot of information in a, in you know a small portion of history, especially like you know mo- most American historians are looking at you know centuries worth of stuff, but Mormon historians get to take like the Nauvoo period and just have a wealth of documents, which is kind of cool. Let's just talk about what the Council of Fifty is. And now I have to say this: I have to preface this for the listeners. If you're a Mormon fundamentalist, you're going to be familiar with the Council of Fifty. It's likely that some some groups practice a similar governing body within their their group structure. But we're going to talk about what this is, not just related to an LDS sense, but how it would have been understood at the time. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, that's great. So who wants to who wants to field that one? So, I mean, I think, you know, we probably both have different things to add, but I'll just say that, you know, during the time that the um, Mormons were in Illinois, it was rough and everyone has heard stories of the persecution and everyone's heard stories about um, mobs and tarring and feathering. And it it was a hard go. And so at the time, Joseph Smith and a select group of people came together and the goal was to create an organization that became known as the Council of 50 
or the kingdom of God. And it kind of had two purposes. It was trying to find a place for the Mormons to go to establish a theocracy or theocratic government. And it was also an organization that was trying to protect both the temporal and spiritual interests of the church. And so that's something that's important is that this isn't just spiritual matters, but temporal matters are also in the council. And so very generally, it was a political body in a lot of ways in that it was trying to find a place, a way to establish a theocracy. It was deciding where to go. Um, at the time, Texas and Oregon and California were kind of all in the mix. But then it was also trying to figure out how to take care of the saints right now. Right. So it was it was a secret. I mean, I guess the short answer would be, you know, it's like a secret um, political body organization that Joseph Smith founded, again, with those purposes to, to find redress of grievances um, and to identify a place where uh, the saints could could gather. Because by early 1844, it seemed that the the Mormons would have um, difficulty remaining in Nauvoo. And the idea wasn't necessarily to abandon Nauvoo entirely, but, but yet find another place where, um, where, they could, where they could gather in the end days. One of the early members of the Council of 50 referred to it as the municipal department of the kingdom of God set up on the earth. And he said, it's, it's the body from which all law emanates. So it, kind of had this, I mean, there's always been this debate within historiography, whether, you know, symbol and substance. So to what extent was Joseph Smith and early Mormons being symbolic in sort of their declaring of the kingdom of God? Uh, and to what extent were they, did they mean what they said, in fact, to establish a body that would, that would have political control, not just over Mormons, but over really the entire world. Um, and uh, in the during the millennium, so yeah, kind of. There's a lot going on here, and a lot of ambition behind this project. So let let me let me frame it how I as a Mormon this this is the closest thing that I can think of, and and I want you guys to weigh in and, and to see if this is accurate. So growing up in the Wasatch Front as a Utah Mormon girl, I got really excited with this sort of Cleon uh, Skousen end of days uh, stuff. Right, I was totally here for the millenarianism, like was my thing. And I think we forget now because the church has really moved away from a lot of that rhetoric, the end of times, the food storage, yada, yada. It's, you know, we're, in my opinion, moving to a more mainstream uh, Christian church. But growing up, I felt this pull and it was really exciting. And I think that in the context that this was created, I mean, these men really thought that they were establishing a future kingdom of God on earth. And how exciting would that have been to... You know, you're doing the practical parts now, but it really is for the future. It's almost like uh, food storage for your theology, right? Or for your governing structure. They're saving for the future. And that's how that's how I see it framed, that they would go and the things that they were thinking were not just on the ground, boots on the ground then, but it was for when Christ was going to come and that was going to be very soon. So we have to get ready for that. Yeah, I, th I think there's a lot. To that, I mean, I'm convinced having read the record of the Council of 50, as well as diary entries, letters that, that members wrote about their experience in the Council of 50, that they, that they were convinced that the Council would play this pivotal role, not just symbolically, but actually in the unfolding cosmic events of the end days. Um, and many of them saw those end days, of course, I'm sure as you've talked about before in your podcast, as, as coming much sooner than, you know, than we, Many people may tend to think of it now, but there was this kind of energy behind the Council of 50 
almost to a person, like the members felt that they were part of this really momentous project and they, they felt really honored to be, to be a part of it. So. And I think that there was this aspect to, uh, you know, since I've been really embedded in fundamentalist groups and fundamentalist culture here and even like LDS fundamentalist culture, I, it's interesting to note how women um, who are true believers in this gospel sort of situate themselves to the power and the priesthood that their husbands hold, right? This idea of men. And so mm-hmm. I see like the, one of the discussions, you know, Council of 50 is really centered on men, but the women of the time, my understanding was they saw this as an exciting, their husbands were going to fix things, right? They were in this chaos and these men were going to establish this peaceable kingdom. And of course, it's a very violent time. So that peace is a funny word. But this was going to be the way through it. Like they, they're going to go fix the world. How, how exciting of an idea that must be when you are living in such chaos. Hmm. And at the same time, I think that really adds to this folklore and mythos that surrounds the Council of Fifty, because these were real people that felt that they were the chosen of God. They were establishing God's kingdom and they were heavily persecuted. And we know from records how outsiders viewed Mormons. And so compound that with that Mormons are creating a theocratic government, that they're forming a political organization. There's coronations within the organization. The records are being asked to be burned. And so this would have created a lot of speculation of what were in these records. And so I think that whole idea of people really truly believing in this and being excited about this only added to speculation of what the minutes contained. Um, But to kind of frame them a little further, I wanted to mention that prior to going to Carthage, Joseph Smith instructed William Clayton, who was the scribe, to destroy the records, to burn them. Um, And so that added to to a lot of speculation about what was in them, even now knowing that Joseph Smith wanted them destroyed. But of course, being the great honest scribe that Clayton was, he didn't do that. He went against the prophet, which I think is incredible that he was such a great archivist early on that he said no, and he buried them instead. And so a lot of people had point, have pointed out one of the interesting things about the Council of 50 is it's just another Mormon text that comes out of the ground and it's unburied mm. um, and becomes really important for Mormonism. But so the minutes that we have now, it's in three little books. One's like burnt orange, orange and red. Um, They're three little books, and they're actually copies that William Clayton made of the originals, and he took those copies and continued being the scribe under Brigham Young. And so I wanted to add to that that surrounding this whole thing is these minutes were supposed to be burned, so we weren't even supposed to have them, but we do because of one man who said no to Joseph Smith. Wow, that's that's really powerful. State, you know, this this text is yet another record that comes from the ground. I hadn't thought of that, but but yeah, it's absolutely absolutely the case. But I think that speaking of this myth, there are a series of myths that have grown up behind the Council of Fifty, um, including the idea that it was a shadow government in Utah, you know, prior or up to the eighteen seventies. It even continued to be kind of influential into the. 20th century, but on the underground. So in a, in a way, it's like, you know, that myth is really quite fascinating, has an allure of its own. It's, I guess you could think of these minutes and all the other records that we've gathered over the last however many years is sort of like, it's, it's kind of pulling back the curtain on such an enigmatic body, which, which I guess is, is satisfying, but also it's like, well, you know, what is this record? And is it, 
is it as is this body as interesting or um, worthy of myth as we've as we ascribe to it? I don't know. It's yeah, really I know. I know when I got when they came, when they first came out, uh, I think it was Signature that published them. What was that? Two years ago? How long has that been? Uh, it's been four years. Four yeah. four years. I I just remember being like. Okay, where's the good stuff? Like, where's the good <laughs> stuff? I'm reading, reading, reading. Where's the good stuff? Um, so I want you guys to answer this question for me. It's two two questions into one. We were talking about the myths, which I think we should discuss because there is this sort of uh, mm-hmm. ex-Mormon, anti-Mormon critique that this was a, the Ga- Gadiat and robbers, like, contradiction. It's a secret combination. These guys were meeting so they could, you know, run their shenanigans and, and be violent. So that's w- one thing I want to talk about. And then I want to address how would these men have seen it at the time i can't so one of, one of the things i'll say is the minutes are a lot less exciting than i think the hype was for them at least that's how i felt um because i heard all these stories about people trying to steal them by stuffing them in their converse out of the archive and that i was going to read all about blood atonement and that's really not there um that much so um, in terms of, I can't speak to concern that it's secret combinations and because I don't feel that or worry about things like that on the regular because I'm Catholic. But I think at the time, one of the things that, be- that becomes really interesting that I don't know if a lot of people realize is not everyone who was part of the Council of 50 were Mormon. There were three individuals who weren't members of the church. Um, I think one was an Episcopalian actually. Um, But at the time, the Council of 50 embedded within itself was this idea of separation of church and state. The Council of 50 was not trying to create one encompassing organization that was both the government and the church. People were members of the LDS church and not part of the Council of 50, and people were part of the Council of 50 and not part of the church. And so embedded within it was this idea that they were creating a government, but it wasn't supposed to be also the church. And I think contemporarily we read onto the council of 50 that they were conflating the two but i think at the time they really believed that they could create these distinct separate organizations and make that work hmm. yeah so there was a clear se- separation that joseph smith saw for this for this body what we have in the minutes are these lengthy deliberations in which there really is disagreement on this question as well as many other questions so um, a number of number of individuals in say an early spring 1844 meeting would would argue, well, this just um, it's one and the same, right? So this is a theocratic organization. The members are primarily uh, they're church leaders, they're civic leaders, but they're pretty much all Mormons except for three. And so it is kind of like a church body. But Joseph Smith made a clear distinction between the kingdom of God and and the church. Yeah, so that's actually quite an interesting um, point that's to be made here. Can I read a, a section of the Council of Fifty real quick about that? Sure. Um, so this it's a it's some it's a long paragraph, um, but I think it's important because it really makes clear this idea that the men who were part of the Council of Fifty weren't trying to create this massive conglomerate theocratic situation, um, and they say, "quote There is a distinction between the Church of God and the Kingdom of God." The laws of the kingdom are not designed to affect our salvation hereafter. It is an entire, distinct, and separate government. The church is a spiritual matter and a spiritual kingdom. But the kingdom which Daniel saw was not a spiritual kingdom, but was designed to be got up for the safety and salvation of the saints by protecting them in their religious rites and worship. Anything that would tolerate man in the worship of his God 
under his own vine and fig tree would be tolerated of God. The literal kingdom of God and the church of God are two distinct things. And then he goes on and talks about the constitution, how it needs to be amended and whatnot. So they were, they were critical of the U.S. government, but they were very clear that the church is a spiritual matter and it deals with salvation and the kingdom of God is something very different. And I want to point Even out that these ideas that, that they are talking about in 1840s Nauvoo are really going to have an impact in the psyche of Mormonism and in the West, right? Because these are ideas that I I heard about growing up, mm-hmm. but we didn't know about the Council of 50, right? It's just sort of in the psyche of Mormonism. However, you know, we're going to talk about how how long the council goes, but you know, there were regular meetings being held by individuals whether it was sanctioned or not all into the 20th century into fundamentalism, right? And so the purpose where when Joseph Smith was involved really evolves in my opinion. And so we need to remember that it wasn't a monolith. Like it started out one thing and then as government pressures and the landscape of the American West changed, you see that reflected in these minutes. Right. So it, it actually was, I mean, it started out as kind of an academic exercise, right? So they're really throwing around lots of ideas about what uh, an ideal theocracy um, would, would look like. And, and but, but by the time they, they uh, make their way, at least the main body of the Latter-day Saints make their way to the Great Basin, they're able to institute sort of many of the ideas that they had talked about under Joseph Smith and um, in 1845 and 46 actually in Utah territory. And for a couple of brief years, um, it's, it's, the, it's the political governing body in Utah territory. I guess what I see from this record is that you have, I was, I was struck by just how in, incredibly ambitious the members were in terms of like uh, what they saw as the, as the end result of their deliberations. I want to know, like, tell me, like, Okay, so let's just dive into it. Like, what what kind of things are they talking about? What are what are their concerns? And then I want to get into the juiciest stuff that we know about because that's what people really want to know. So, what what were their concerns? Say in Abu. Yeah. So, what kind of things are they discussing? What are the minutes recording? Like, if someone's going to buy these or read these minutes, what are they going to what are what should they expect? Well, there's going to be a lot of discussion about about how to. Well, there's going to be a lot of anger that you see in these records. So people are talking about, I guess that's one thing that struck me on, on one hand, the records were not, um, you know, there's no um, smoking gun or, or anything like, or anything like that in the record. But in, a, in another way, it is very rich in revealing sort of sentiment of Mormons and early church leaders toward the federal government. So there's a lot of anger about the way that the federal government would not redress grievances for the way the Mormons have been treated in Missouri. That's a major theme that you see in these, in these early records. And then of course there, what really strikes me and what's quite interesting is the way that early Mormons were considering and thinking about relocating to another place um, within the United States, outside of the United States into um, Texas, the Republic of Texas, and beyond into Mexican territory in the Great Basin, in Northern California, in Oregon, and even Vancouver. And so you have these deliberations that, um, again, no one's, no one's uh, settled on any one particular place really until September 1845. But you, you have a lot of different ideas floating about, about what the best 
course of action would be in the immediate, um, you know, short term for for the main body of the Latter Day Saints. Yeah. So I mean, one of the immediate concerns was getting out of Nauvoo and creating a space where they could deal with, where they could kind of just start over. Uh, one of the things that I found particularly important was that the Council of Fifty and trying to take care of their own people. You know, we'll talk a little bit more about how they dealt with outsiders, but. In trying to take care of their own people, they were just as concerned about the temporal dealings of their people as the spiritual dealings. And so not only did they see their religion being persecuted, but they also saw, you know, their stories of like cows being stolen and mobs burning down houses. And so the temporal needs of the people was considered just as important. And so when they're talking about Nauvoo, uh, the Nauvoo house, building the Nauvoo house was considered just as important as building the Nauvoo temple because creating an economic infrastructure was just as worthy of a cause to them because they had seen a situation where their people were being run out of town and houses were being burned down and economy and the economy of the saints was destroyed. And so that translated in the minutes to try to create a situation where they could economically flourish as well as spiritually flourish. And I want to talk about sort of this catalyst. So I think it's it's uh, in 1842 that Joseph Smith has this revelation to have to have the living constitution, right? And correct me if I'm wrong on my details, which they would later call the Council of 50. So that's in 1842. And it was supposed to be like this future government for when Christ comes. But they don't really establish anything official until 1844. And it w- was really because William Law now is organizing a band to overthrow Joseph Smith. So there's like a clear and present danger. So... I think that like, you know, when we're talking about what is symbolic, what is not, what is literal, I think that the reason why it's sort of hard to untangle all of that is because the motivations for this establishment of this government are a little unclear. They're a little muddied with the conflict going on at the time, the original intention. And correct me if I'm wrong, but this was supposed to, they they, uh, saw this as an establishment out of the Bible, right? The Old Testament. There was... um, Oh my gosh, I'm trying to remember the scripture, the book of Daniel, where they mm-hmm. talk about the stone cut out of the mountain without hands. This, um, and they, the kingdom of God was never to be destroyed. And so when Christ comes and there's this destruction, this is going to be the thing that picks it up. So I really think like the, like the confusion and the anger and all of that with, with this, uh, tension of it's supposed to br- bringing peace and the, in the last days or whatever. We see all of that um, as a reflection yeah. to what these guys are going through on the ground. And they were angry at the government. Um, there, you know, there's stories about them petitioning the government for help and to just no avail. And so that is really reflected in these minutes when they pull no punches with their feelings about the government and the Constitution. And so the Constitution becomes something that's really iffy in the minds of the men of the council of 50 to the point that Joseph Smith reveals a revelation basically saying you guys are the constitution now. Um, and so what that means for their feelings about the physical constitution, I have no idea, but their views of the government in their lived experience is really reflected in the minute. Jedediah, I want to ask you this question because the, the use of the constitution in general to me is such a, like a, manifest destiny term like a an american idea which mm-hmm. of course joseph smith was influenced by so do you want to do you have any thoughts on the on the fact that like they're they're taking this from biblical roots and yet it's such an americanized sort of structure does that make sense 
Oh yeah, I guess I guess it is. I mean, because when you reference this 1842 revelation, and actually I should probably preface that even though we have some evidence or references that there was an 1842 revelation, we don't know where the revelation is. And I guess there would be some question if it ever existed. So, um, but but from early on, Joseph Smith seemed to have been concerned with the constitution for this body. And and as Christine noted, you know, this this revelation was not written. It was, well, we have a written constitution, but ultimately it was like the main body of, mm-hmm. of, of, you know, the Council of 50 was this constitution. It was a living constitution. And what I see from the minutes from the Nauvoo period is this, it is this devotion. On the one hand, uh, there's this feeling that the federal government has not um, has not done what they ought to do in sort of redressing you know grievances that the Mormons felt. So there's a lot of anger towards the federal government, but on the other hand, a lot of reverence towards the the founding documents uh, and the founding constitution of uh, of the United States. So you get this like sort of tug and pull, mm-hmm. yeah. And I would say that's absolutely present today in fundamentalism. Yeah. This tension between like righteous government and corrupt government and like you know i i had offended uh christina and i went and visited the bundy family and we had offended them by i offended them on a podcast saying they're anti-government and i was like where where was that wrong and i didn't understand that they draw a distinction between righteous government and corrupt government so they respect the american government when it's being run righteously and it, and it like i said it's just in this mormon psyche this idea of government and then God's government, right? And and I think that this is where a lot of this is rooted. Um I do I do have a question about Well I was I was just gonna say really quick off of that is that the Council of Fifty gave me a complete new way of understanding the Bundys, um, people who do standoffs against the government generally, um, really ardent libertarian Mormons, uh, and Mormons who are part of the sovereign citizen movement and really I don't know the word, like intense political ideological movements, because Mormons who are engaging in that contemporarily are just being Mormon. They're doing something that has been done for the last 187 years of Mormon history. And so I think that's something that these minutes do is they really shed light on contemporary Mormons who are part of these political movements that a lot of people look at as fringe or disagree with, but it kind of gives them a foundation for what they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. It, you know, and even going back to the Council uh, of 50, it seemed to me that they're, uh, they're going, they're trying to return to sort of the founding ideal, ideals of, um, the, of the United States. So it's like, it, there wasn't necessarily the party, partisanship happening with the formation of the Council of 50. I mean, you know, it's important to note that Mormons had largely leaned Jacksonian in the 1830s. I mean, they voted overwhelmingly for Martin Van Buren in 1836. But, um, you know, when Van Buren rejects the Mormon appeals for federal redress of grievances, uh, the Mormons in Nauvoo did vote for the Whigs nationally, but continued to support Illinois Democrats. But there wasn't the sense that, like, you know, the the Council of 50 was just another political party. It's almost like trying to, in the age of Jackson uh, and market revolution of the early 19th century, try to bring about some real reform, some unity politically. and by doing that, you go back to the founding documents of of the United States. I don't, would, would you, I don't know, like, you might know this because I don't. Were there other religious groups in the 19th century that were acting similarly in terms of politics? Oh, I don't, I don't know. 
I don't know. I can't answer that. I don't know either. I will say, and and we're going to talk about this later, but th- this is actually, I hope I get to go on a little rant about this later on, that my frustration with the way that, that you know, the mainstream media talks about uh, fundamentalist groups and even the Bundy family, they fail to understand this very Mormon connection, which is like, you know, we see Mormonism as the LDS church. We don't see it as a larger movement. And so these, the ways and the structures and the governing bodies of these groups are really informed by these ideas, which are deeply, deeply Mormon. And I wish that that would be explored more rather than, you know, it's just like sovereignty movements trying to take over the government. This is a, this is an actual tradition of Mormon thinking, Mormon government that I think still is very much well-preserved today in a lot of Mormon spaces. So anyway, I have a question for you guys. Back to the this idea of them being a, const- a living constitution. What does that mean, boots on the ground? So like if you are in this Council of 50, you see yourself as a living constitution. What does that mean in a practical sense? Like how do these men, what did they see their role as? What did they think that their job was? In terms of the how this actually plays out, there's not a whole lot of step-by-step. A lot of it is philosophizing and thinking through and, you know, like, you know, anger um, and thinking what they could do. But the terms of day-to-day aren't super clear. Uh, It's not a very practical guide of how to construct a theocratic government and how to construct a temporal world where everyone's going to get along. But that doesn't mean the ideals aren't there. And so, but I think, but that's the constitution generally, right? So the constitution says everyone has freedom of religion. It doesn't say boots on the ground, what that's going to look like. It's super vague. And so the council 50 is very similar to that. And one of the things that comes forward in the council is they want to protect religious freedom. And that's interesting contemporarily for the church. And we can talk a little bit about that. But in the Council of 50, religious freedom did not mean religious freedom if you're an LDS person or if you're part of the church. Um, the Council of 50 was really invested in this idea of religious tolerance and creating a world where everyone could act on their own accord. And there's a great quote in the record where it says, um, quote, for the benefit of mankind and succeeding generations, he, Joseph Smith, wished it to be recorded that there are men admitted mem- men admitted members of this honorable council who are not members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, they with a capital D as a no, neither profess any creeds or religious sentiment whatever to show that in the organization of this kingdom, men are not consulted as to their religious opinions or notions in any shape or form, whatever, and that we act upon the broad and liberal principle that all men have equal rights and ought to be respected and that every man has a privilege has a privilege in this organization for choosing for himself voluntarily his god and what he pleases for his religion inasmuch as there is no danger but that every man will embrace the greatest slight and so i think that's really that that kind of gives an idea of the ideals they're going to try to create it doesn't give a practicality but that's kind of what the council sounds like mhm Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it certainly was based on these like broad ideals. I mean, there were the you know members of the council were initiated, so they were told uh, key words in a ritual, recalling practices in Mormon temple worship. They were they were sworn to secrecy, right? So they were they considered themselves chosen uh, members of this living constitution, 
and I guess what that means is that um, the, what are, their acts and decisions would reflect God's will. But the mechanics of how that worked uh, is unclear to me as well. I mean, they were, um, I think, Revelation, I guess, must have played a part. The, the Joseph Smith considered the chairman position, of which he was, and then Brigham Young, after Joseph Smith's death, was an important uh, role in sort of establishing the, the will and word of the Lord, even in this body. But yeah, I think the main the main idea behind the council was to establish these these broad principles upon which uh, a new society could be based. Okay, so let's get into the the dirty details. What what are the most scandalous things that we learned from the minutes? <laughs> you know, that's why people are t- tuning in. They're like, did they tell Porter Rockwell to kill Governor Boggs? Yeah, no, we don't have any no. evidence of that. Or at least I didn't see any. It's it's mostly like these these smaller things, and I'm thinking primarily of 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 what I see in the Utah. Well, we're, you're talking about the Nauvoo minutes, uh, okay? So what's what's scandalous in the Nauvoo minutes? I think everyone wants to hear about the coronation. Yeah, but there's not really there's not a whole lot there. At least it didn't. That's what's scandalous is it's not there. Right. So we have these references to Joseph Smith being um, what's the wording. He's Crowned prophet, priest, and king. Prophet, priest, priest, and king with loud hosannas. I, I have a quote. This is on March 26, 1844. Joseph mm-hmm. confers the keys of ecclesiastical authority to the 12 apostles in the meeting of the Council 50. He says, quote, It may be that my enemies will kill me. Should any of you be killed, you can lay your hands upon others and fill up your quorum. If you are called to lay down your lives, die like men. And I think mm-hmm. that there is some rhetoric like that it, that is kind of, I wouldn't say invoking violence, but like uh, anticipating it. Oh, yeah. I think they were constantly anticipating dying, but I don't think that's unjustified. Um, and I, 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 I want to talk about the coronation only because when the Council of 50 Minutes came out, everyone was so excited to read the part where Joseph Smith is crowned king. Um, and that's not, I, and I, you know, I don't, people aren't going to love this, but I want to suggest that that idea isn't unique to Mormonism. And it's also not quite as radical as I think it's made out to be. A lot of the early leaders were coronated as king. But at the same time, I want to say that, you know, who runs the Church of England? The queen, right? Like she's the head of the Church of England currently. Um, the Pope has always been the vicar of Christ. We even had one Pope who called himself God on earth. Uh, that this idea of kingship and a suzerain who run, who oversees his vassals, which is something in fundamentalism that we see a lot, um, isn't really unique to Mormonism. And I would suggest that the Council of 50 in the 19th century, if you like really look at it in its 19th century American context, isn't that crazy? I could, tell me if I'm wrong. I don't have a whole lot of context to base it, but I have no reason to contest what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> well, let, let, let me ask you this. So we know that they had to to join. They had to covenant. There was a password and a penalty. Do you guys know what the penalty was? I don't. Was it similar I, to a temple penalty? I, I, yeah. Well, no, I don't. I don't know specifically, but we do have references. So. Just real fast. So later on in, you know, 1849, when after the Mormons had become um, 
settled in the Great Basin. You know, Young, Young threatens, quote, a member of the council had been guilty of divulging the secrets of this council. And so we see the first mentions, I think in 1849, first mentions that I know of, of blood atonement. And again, there's this impulse to keep these conversations secret. Uh, and I, I guess I was taken aback a, a bit by Young's, Young's in particular, his rhetoric, establishing kind of a firm hand and reigning in wickedness and dissent, right? Okay. Yeah, I mean, he's like, but really, there's some really um, kind of violent rhetoric that's, that's being thrown around here, and it's a bit disturbing, but just this, this idea that you're establishing this godly society in a new land um, was really only possible with this iron fist to prevent, like, what he says, infernals, thieves, murderers, whoremongers, and every other wicked curse to exist. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, anyway. There's... And to be fair, they had a lot of insiders turn on them all the time. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Um, I'm just going to read uh, the rules of the kingdom. This is uh, how they they move forward legislation. So it was said, quote, to pass a motion must be unanimous in the affirmative. Voting is done after the ancient order. Each person voting in turn from the oldest to the youngest member of the council, commencing with the standing chairman. If any member has objections, he is under covenant to fully and freely make them known to the council. But if he cannot be convinced of the rightness of the course pursued by the council, he must either yield or withdraw membership in the council. Thus, a man will lose his place in the council if he refuses to act in accordance with righteous principles in the deliberations of the council. After action is taken and a motion accepted, no fault will be found or change sought for in regard to the motion, end quote. Um, I do think, I, and I hope I'm not conflating this, but Brian Buchanan was talking to me about, he was, uh, it's an entry in William Clayton's journal, and I think it's in, I think it's in this time period where Joseph Smith is referring to the fact that both Hiram and Brigham had abandoned their uh, covenants. And so we were trying to track down what that meant. Like, what what did Brigham do? And uh, I don't know if it has to do with the covenants here, you know, because it seems like a covenant would be having a disagreement and not saying it. I mean, that's mm-hmm. that's what they're saying. So covenant could be anything from not sustaining the prophet to not voicing your disagreement with something, which is kind of a tricky thing in this climate. Yeah, and it's kind of, it's also doubly tricky because one of the things that, I don't remember who it was, it might have been Patrick Mason, I don't remember which scholar it was who wrote about the Council of Fifty, but in the 19th century, one of the things, the philosophical ideas that was really permeating everything at the time was common sense moral reasoning. And what that means was there was this idea that if, you know, all of us, all three of us got together, um, people who are like relatively intelligent, have generally good values. If we all came together and a topic was put before us, we would all agree out of common sense. And that sounds like a radical idea because people disagree about things all the time. Mm -hmm. But in the 19th century, there was this general idea that if you got a bunch of people together and you talked something over rationally, everyone would have to agree because there's a rational solution to things. And so the idea of dissent was doubly challenging not only from a religious Mormon perspective, but also from a general American philosophical context, because at the time, this idea really permeated religious thinking, that there was a common sense solution to things. So to be a dissenter was not only to go against your religion, but it was also to say you lack common sense. And sometimes it's just common sense to kill Governor Bucks. I'm kidding. 
I'm kidding. I mean, I'm maybe. Kidding. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't make it in the minutes. I'm kidding. Um, no, it doesn't. But I do think we should talk Jedediah, especially because Christina and I were talking about this before you hopped on. Like we were talking about this difference between being coronated king and being ordained king because, you know, I have this from the minutes. It says, Ver- Verily thus saith the Lord, this is the name by which you shall be called the kingdom of God and his law with the keys and powers thereof and judgment in the hands of a servant, Amon Christ. Mm. What was Joseph Smith's role? What's, wh- how do we understand his official title as king? Well, I mean, I guess people can take it in different ways. I, 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 I he clearly was, I mean, it was for me, this is some, a symbolic act. I mean, I don't know what, mm-hmm. I don't know how you can interpret it any other way, but I'd be happy to entertain just, do either of you interpret this as being something more than symbolic? Uh, I don't. Well, okay, so let's dive into symbolic. Like, did Joseph Smith think that he was a, acting as king for God? I believe so. I believe in a very literal sense, Joseph saw himself as God's servant. Um, so in that sense, I don't think it's symbolic. But I do I think that Joseph Smith thought that he had like a like a monarchy in the land no yeah well, I mean, clearly clearly he didn't have that yeah monarchy i mean i guess he would have felt that his his receiving dictates from the divine would um would constitute so it's more than symbolic in that sense even if there weren't subjects uh to uh you know to, to govern necessarily beyond his own body of uh, the council of 50 and mormons but yeah, I guess. Yeah, I guess you could see it that way. But I, yeah, he clearly didn't. I mean, this the project of the Council of Fifty seems to me to be something that was um, forthcoming, and so it was it was designed to sort of usher in this millennial reign in which Christ Christ would rule. Um, and so, a lot of these promises, I think, that are happening in deliberations seem to be oriented to the future, not necessarily to what's what they're experiencing in the here and now. And is it fair to say yeah. that I think that Joseph Smith and his contemporaries, especially because they're influenced by the American Christian landscape at the time and the King King James Version and all of this, like heaven was very much talked about in uh, terms of thrones and principalities and kingdoms and kings and priests, you know, you know what I mean? So this seems in line with how they would have seen the structure of heaven as sort of. A theological monarchy. I don't know if that's just being too reductive. Well, one of the hmm. things that I think a lot of the, the reason why I kind of read this as symbolic is I think this goes back to the idea that they were creating a kingdom of God, but then also a church. And so Joseph Smith was already prophet over a church that was tangible and real and there. Although you know we can talk about distinctions between the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints and the Church of the Firstborn, but he was the prophet over the church. When he's crowned king, he's crowned king over the kingdom of God, which is the temporal political body, but that body didn't exist yet. And so I think it was in preparation for this time when the kingdom of God would exist, but it just didn't at the time of Joseph Smith. Now, moving beyond the symbolic, I do think that it it moves beyond the symbolic because part of this whole landscape we're talking about is Joseph Smith ran for president. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so it's symbolic, but also he ran for president. Okay, so so that's what I'm saying. This is the tension. Like, do do we think that he thought he was an actual king with a kingdom? Likely not. But again, what I want to point out is 
not only did he run for president, but in Nauvoo, he was assuming all sorts of titles. He was general. Mm-hmm. He was mayor. He was going to try to be uh, president. So I think he was experimenting in a way that was probably not clear to him or to those around him uh, exactly what that meant, boots yeah. on the ground, how much power he had. Clearly, he had a lot of administrative power in his community. But again, he didn't have it with the federal government, and that's a tension that would follow Mormons forever. It's definitely a major theme in late Nauvoo period. Um, So in the mid-1840s, that Joseph Smith was consolidating power right Mm -hmm. through through these various titles. And I think this is just sort of the ultimate example of um, of, of reaching for that. Now, whether he meant, whether he meant it in a real sense, I mean, there's also, you know, you mentioned the campaign for the presidency and most, the most, a lot of times people think of this as sort of a kind of a symbolic act, right? right. Sort of to, to draw attention to, uh, the Mormons, uh, issues and problems, particularly the, the hope to get some sort of redress, but, uh, but I think there is some evidence from the Nauvoo minutes that there was that the attempt to win the presidency was was not just hopeful, but it was you know it was something real that there could actually be some real world um, governance that uh, that Joseph Smith could obtain through mm-hmm. through this. If not in 1844, then perhaps um, in some other way. But certainly getting his name out there and winning some electoral votes yeah. was. Uh, well, I think the argument could be made that that was part of his design. And I would yeah, say that that follows uh, Brigham Young as well. I mean, when he so these men didn't just like think of power symbolically. They tried to get it. Brigham Young tries to set up an actual kingdom of God on earth. Then he, ha- you know, then when he realizes quite quickly that that's not going to work out, he is trying to negotiate power with the with the federal government. But even in uh, I think it's um. The, their first, let's see, I think it was in 1849, and I could get this wrong, but they were celebrating a Pioneer Day. Um, no, it's 57. It's in 1857. It's right before the Utah War. Brigham Young, I don't know if he was making a joke. I don't know if he was being sarcastic or if he was being serious, but he declares up at Silver Lake when they're having, like, Porter Rockwell, like, dramatically rides into the canyon and says the federal government is coming Brigham Young says, you know, I someday I prophesy that I'm going to be the the president of the United States. He saw himself as trying to consolidate the same structures of power, at least in my opinion. Yes. And I actually think that that's a major theme. The the major theme that I saw from the council minutes from the Nauvoo period was just how much the uh, that um, just how much how much aspiration there was, I suppose, in organizing a political kingdom. Um, that it wasn't just, it wasn't just a symbolic gesture that, for example, moving to the Great Basin, there was this attempt to, to separate themselves, separation from the United States and to establish their own political organization, political entity, um, even though they were realistic enough to understand that, um, say, the United States would shortly likely acquired this territory, Mexican territory. So they figured that they should also um, petition for territorial status and then later decided to petition for statehood. But I think initially what you see in the Nauvoo Minutes was this idea that, hey, um, the, the United States is not serving our purposes, at least in its current political orientation, mm-hmm. and, and that, and that we're, going to, we're going to start over on a blank slate. 
And so I think that's a major thing and certainly Brigham Young um, through that process clearly had political ambition. And I think one of the things that's really important about that is a lot of, so this year on 4th of July, Captain Murrow and I was in the Salt Lake Parade. And what's in, and contemporary Mormons kind of look at 4th of July and politics and the U.S. as being great. A lot of Mormons really like the U.S. government. And when we talk about Pioneer Day, there's kind of an adverse reaction to thinking about it as an anti-government act. And in, there's kind of like there's a short book of essays on the Council of 50, and Paul Reeve wrote a really great essay on it. And he talks about this idea that he made a comment about Pioneer Day once um, about how it was anti-government. And a lot of Mormons came to him and said that's unfair to their ancestors. Their ancestors loved America. They were patriots. And he made a comment that after reading the Council of 50, his, his opinion is even stronger than it was before, that this was an anti-U.S. government act. And so Captain Moroni in the 4th of July parade is weird. Just say, no, yeah, it's weird. It's weird that he's in there because Mormons at this time were not fans of the government. They were actively trying to leave, to go to Mexico. And so I think that's something the Council of 50 really sheds light on is this idea of early Mormons being these patriotic figures who loved the U.S. It's just not in the historical record. I'm going to not say it's weird. I'm going to say it's very Mormon. Like this, this tension. Yeah, this tension, like it just exists. It doesn't make sense. You know, when I went down to Short Creek and, and so I want to move into the fundamentals piece in just a second, but like, it was so weird for me to see like flagpoles and the American flag. And, you know, I'm like, what, what is happening? Um, so let's move forward really quick to Brigham Young's role and John Taylor's role, uh, just sort of briefly. Well, I mean, Brigham Young, of course, he takes, he's chairman of the Council of 50 and, um, after, after it's reorganized after Joseph Smith's death. So in 18, I think 40, 44 or early 1845. And then through 1845 and 1846, again, their deliberations and primarily they really center around this question of where are the Latter-day Saints going to relocate, knowing that their days in Nauvoo were numbered. Um, so for a period after 18, uh, 46, the, the Council of 50 sort of didn't operate. I think that the reason for that is just the mechanics of, of moving. People were scattered about, in a way, the Council of 50, members of the Council of 50 anyway, they organized these, you know, these immigrant parties. So they were, they were heads of the immigrant um, organizations that moved west. Uh, so in that, in that sense, the Council of 50 did operate, but as a, as a larger body and a deliberative body, there weren't really meetings after 1846 until 1849. So after the Mormons had already made their way into the Great Basin and established settlements in the Salt Lake Valley. Um, and Joseph Smith, or Brigham Young rather, he, he takes, uh, he takes the Council of 50 and he uses it as sort of the governing organization for a period of about 18 months or a little bit longer in the Great Basin. But I think one, one thing to say about Brigham Young is that uh, he was more, he had difficulties with the Council of 50. He saw it as unwieldy. He, he thought it very difficult to corral these 50 men and their varying opinions um, very well. So he definitely took a heavy-handed approach to the body. He also, uh, he also kind of minimized its role, even though for a period, it did act as the org, um, sort of the governing body in the, in the Salt Lake Valley. Uh, on the other hand, 
Brigham Young felt uh, more comfortable with the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. And this is where he sort of elevates, in a way, the Quorum of the Twelve over the Council of Fifty, mm. even though that that status, that hierarchy isn't necessarily clear um, from Joseph Smith, or at least how Joseph Smith thought of it. Brigham Young certainly established it. Um, and that would have that would have far-ranging consequences, of course. Christina, what do you want to say about Brigham? About Brigham? Uh, he was also coronated <laughs> king, but I think that one, that one I don't think was as symbolic in that they were founding the Utah Territory. Um, I think, you know, I don't have a super high opinion of Brigham Young. Um, just to throw that out there. Um, I am oddly apologetic for Joseph for some reason, but... I don't have a super high opinion of Brigham Young. And I think, I think he really used the Council of 50 to his advantage in movement West. Um, you know, this document is a document of, I know this is a problematic term of manifest destiny. And I think he used it as such to kind of give the Westward expansion. It, Westward expansion already had really Protestant language that supported it. But I think Brigham Young really used the Council of 50 to his advantage to give him justification and legitimization for the Utah Territory. And one of the things that is really important is the Council of 50 does talk about indigenous relations with the Mormons. And the Council of 50 supported going into indigenous territory and efforts to convert the indigenous people. And so I think the Council really worked in Brigham's favor to create the territory he created, which included, um, you know, indigenous conversion and removing indigenous people from the land. Hmm. And I, I'm going to read something that Jonathan Stapley wrote from By Common Consent, because I think this is an interesting little comment. He says, um, quote, in the post-martyrdom era, it is particularly complex because discourses and institutions become saturated with ideas and cosmologies regarding kingdoms, particularly as a function of the temple. Cosmolog- cosmological priesthood, anyone? But the Council of Fifty is clearly part of this potent gamish. Am I saying that right? Jonathan oh. Stapley is too smart for me. After rebuking... After rebuking the saints by the Platte River for excessive frivolity on the trail west, Brigham gathered the leadership around him and described their mountain destination in terms that clearly incorporated the Council of Fifty. Wilford Woodruff recorded, quote, He then spoke with a standard and ensign that would be reared in Zion to govern the kingdom of God and the nations of the earth. For every nation would bow the knee and every tongue confess that Jesus was the Christ. And this will be the standard, the kingdom of God and his laws and his judgment in the if man Christ and on standard would be a flag of every nation under heaven. So there would be an invitation to all nations under heaven to come unto Zion End quote. I think that that gives us some insight into Brigham's entire mission. Um, This would be a theme like this gathering place, right? The gathering of the saints, but also how Brigham runs the Utah territory with an iron fist. But if you believe you have the stamp of God, of course you're going to run it with an iron fist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think it also it indicates or it gives um, some suggestion as to why Brigham Young selected the Great Basin um, and rather than California. So, you know, one thing that is striking from the minutes is that just how much the Council of 50 talked about Alta or Upper California, which was then Mexican territory. And of course, the Great Basin was part of that Upper California, but they, would, they were actually talking about the Gulf of California as a location um, to resettle. 
and you know, they're, I mean, they're just mentioned, they sang a song called Upper California. They, um, they talked about the advantages of navigation and commerce being close to the sea. Talked about raising all kinds of fruit, building ships. There were shipbuilding discussions happening in the council. But, but I think one of the reasons why they settled, of course, on the Great Basin was that California had already, people, people, Americans are already setting their sights and settling in California by this time. And so they clearly saw this. They, they saw less of the opportunity to create their stamp on the landscape than they saw in the Great Basin. And, and the idea behind creating their stamp and creating a foothold here is that it would be, it would radiate outward, right? So maybe there were some geopolitical aspirations um, from starting in the center place that they saw was kind of a blank slate, even though there were indigenous people here. Um, they, the Council of 50 Deliberations, they discussed this place as sort of a, a, a landscape without a history, a landscape without that was uninhabited. Um, and and I, the idea behind that, again, was to raise this ensign, to raise this standard in which they could, they could radiate out and influence the rest of, you know, the region and the country and the world, potentially. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Um, Christina, unless you don't have anything else, let's talk about John Taylor really quick because the idea is John Taylor. Well, okay. I'll just let you take in our guy, John Taylor. Walk our guy, John it. Taylor. Yeah. Um, you start that cause I have something to say in a minute about modern fundamentalism. Okay. So John Taylor, the reason why I said this to Christina, as we know, is sort of the superhero prophet of fundamentalism. And I think that that's going to come into some importance with John Taylor. So John Taylor was around um, when these, when the original council 50 was organized, but it kind of met irregularly, especially in the Utah period during the Utah war. It, at least it's my understanding between like 1851 and 1868, it was kind of falling to pieces. So the council was reconstituted under Taylor um, in April 1880. Is that correct? Yes. And then yes. they would run it for um, another like five years pretty solidly. He was trying to restructure it. But the 1880s were a really tumultuous time for Taylor as well. Yes. And so the LDS church ends up, you know, putting an end to the Council of 50. But as we know, John Taylor passed the keys to a guy named John Woolley, who kept this idea alive. And so in modern fundamentalism, the idea continues through John Taylor and through the Woolley line um, into the contemporary. And so a lot of fundamentalist groups continue to have councils of 50. And one of the things that I thought was so interesting um, at Sunstone this last year, I chaired a panel uh, with a man who spoke on, he's a fundamentalist and he talked about Mormon fundamentalist history. And he was talking about the Council of 50 and how significant it was under John Taylor. And he made a side comment about how he believes that the LDS Church still has a Council of 50 secretly. And that's why Mitt Romney got the nomination. And I just thought that was incredible. And I just needed to tell you that story. Well, and Jedediah, what do you want to say about John Taylor before I go? Because I'm about to drop my fundamentalist rant in just a minute. So before I do that, do you have anything to say about John Taylor? I, I mean... You know, only that. I mean, what a what a really interesting um, character. I think that you know, I, I probably most of your listeners would know John Taylor's role um, 
at least to a certain degree. Um, but in kind of revitalizing many of the projects that Joseph Smith had initiated, right, mm -hmm. so including the School of the Prophets. But the Council of 50 was one of them. And I see this as his attempt to sort of get back to pure Mormonism in a way. Um, he, he thought that he was definitely devoted to Joseph Smith. Um, and he, he, he felt like Joseph Smith's organization, uh, the Council of 50, was something to be followed, uh, even though. So what they did in 1850 and 1880 is he had a secretary kind of undust these records and they, they spent these really, um, I think, delightful long days and nights sort of reading the Council of 50 minutes, right? And sort of getting excited about the possibilities and recalling back. I mean, I think there's a lot of nostalgia here as well, just recalling back um, kind of the initial excitement behind this body. And uh, I, what I see in the 1880s is John Taylor trying to, to revive an organization that at one time meant a great deal to him. And he thought that it could still play a role in, in the end days. Of course, the 1880s, politically in Utah, things started to unravel. Okay, so that is such a perfect framework uh, for my rant, which I've just been holding on this whole time. Because I, I think the unraveling is interesting. Um, I think the unraveling is interesting. And this idea of John Taylor sort of reviving, like you said, uh, trying to revive this old, like, you know, the the old days, the good old days when Joseph Smith was around. Um, fundamentalists have continued this practice. And even if it's not officially structured as a Council of 50, they would pattern a lot of their groups after this. I, I think of the FLDS, for example, a lot of their um, governing bodies function in a very similar way. They would see themselves connected to politics and the government in a very similar way. As we know, uh, I believe the Kingston still have, is it a formal 50, Christina? I don't know if there's 50 members, but they have a council of 50. Yeah. And so also this idea of having a church versus um an, another like LLC or nonprofit or however they're going to do that's very common in fundamentalists to have, you know, their church as one government or sorry, one official organization. And then they have a separate organization for this kind of stuff and it keeps it separate legally. And it's kind of interesting, but my, here's my concern. And this is what I've been, you know, sort of yelling at LDS historians for a while. When, when I talk to some of our best Mormon historians, they still think in terms of LDS. Many of the historians see the LDS church as Mormonism in spite of President Nelson's recent admi admonitions to not. When we talk about Mormonism, what most scholars mean is the LDS church. And I would caution us to not do that. You know, I was at a I was at MHA a couple years ago when uh, they did a panel on this. And it was a great panel of historians who I respect. And they were talking about these minutes and the justification for the minutes. And, and here, I'm going to sum up some of the justification. They're saying, okay, what we see in these minutes are a great struggle of people who are being persecuted. And any violence that are inherent in the minutes can be attributed to the fact that these people were feeling fear. They wanted to protect their families. They wanted to protect this, this church, this organization, their faith that meant so much to them. And I was just sitting there thinking I had just gotten back from... Um, a, a rally that we had done with the 
police in Colorado City to get the police decertified because the FLDS at that time still had control of the governing structure in the town and the police department. And I just I remember sitting there hearing these historians talk about this, almost rationalizing this government body. And it just it started to get to me. And I raised my hand. And I know I'm not a scholar. I know that I'm seen sometimes as too critical of the church or something like that. And I've said this often that like bringing up Warren Jeffs in a Mormon discussion is like the Mormon Godwin's law, right? Like, you can, like everyone wants to, wants to compare like Warren Jeffs to Joseph Smith. But I, I raised my hand and I said, how do you think those arguments you're making would translate to fundamentalist groups, say the FLDS? And Jan Chips literally rolled her eyes at me. <laughs> she rolled her eyes at me and she said... I remember this. Yeah. I remember this. I was in that room. <laughs> and she goes, well, it's not the same thing at all. And I thought, it's not the same thing at all if you only count LDS as Mormons. But what we don't realize is that there are large thousands and thousands of people who look to these original documents to pattern their current church after. So we need to remember that the critiques and the justifications we're making for people who are our ancestors or informed our traditions are still justifications that should be able to apply to modern day things. I don't see an argument to be made any different with Warren Jeffs. They Here are people with his governing structure who were worried about their children being taken away. Like very literally, that had happened to them. They were worried about their communities being destroyed. They were worried about going to war with outsiders. The, the justification and the, and the thinking, in my opinion, is very, very similar. And so that is just my rant, that as Mormon historians that we remember that when we're talking about Mormon history, it's a larger tradition that doesn't just apply to like, you know, the Nauvoo period or the LDS church. It has this whole expansive impact that we don't consider just because we don't see it. That's my rant. And I, I want to piggyback off that a little bit because I think not only do the, do the justifications not translate, and we see that with so many things, you know, not just the Council of 50, but also it's not taken seriously. So LDS scholars... And, um, and historians generally of, of American history take the Council of 50 very seriously when Joseph Smith did it. But for some reason, when the Council of 50 is recreated contemporarily, it's not taken as seriously. And I think that speaks to the study of Mormon fundamentalism generally and the study of very small religious groups that for some reason, when they're doing the exact same thing, it's not taken as seriously because it's not the dominant narrative. But People are doing the Council of 50. People are creating theocratic societies in the United States that they believe is going to usher in the millennium. The that same impact, thing is impact yes. numbers that would have reflected Nauvoo, right? Impact the yes. same amount of people. And Ab absolutely. And people outside of it, because these are people that own businesses in Utah. These are people that own major corporations in Utah. These are people that you interact with every single day in the state of Utah, and they're members of the Council of 50, and you don't know it. And that's not, you know, to be sensationalist or scary, but it's to say that real people are enacting real belief in things that affect their daily life. It affects the way people vote. It affects the way people worship. It affects the way people just interact generally. Um, and so for, for the count, for councils of 50 today to not be taken as seriously as the council of 50 in Nauvoo is an injustice to the study of history and what history does for the contemporary. 
And I and I would say that I think it's lazy to compare Warren Jeffs to Joseph Smith, right? I think that's lazy. It's a way to take pot shots, but it's also lazy to dismiss the similarities that okay. fundamentalists have who are literally trying to pattern themselves after this kind of Mormonism. And so, again, um, I will stop ranting about this today, but this is a pet peeve of mine that, that these historians who I respect, who I think are brilliant, are very myopic in their scope. They see Mormonism as almost this linear path, you know, that it's like, and now it's this, and then it turned to this, and now it's the LDS church, blah, 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 blah. And that is partially true for a large movement of people, but just because it affects a, a, the dominant narrative does not mean that Mormonism belongs to the LDS church. It clearly does not. Sorry, Jedediah, do you have anything you want to say about any of that? No, only that I completely agree, and I feel guilty on some account. Um, not having explored the sort of different manifestations of the Council of 50 among fundamentalist groups, because I, I think that's a fascinating question. So I, I leave it to you to discuss and debate and all rather um, uh, intently, inter- uh, you know, listen to what you're talking about. But absolutely, yeah, Mormonism is so much larger than the LDS church. So, and uh, the study of Mormonism um, and Mormon studies simply would, uh, is a disservice to not recognize that distinction. Well, and not, I, I here's why I get so uh, riled up about it. I don't even just think it's a disservice. I think that it makes us complicit in the oppression that some of these groups face mm-hmm. because to marginalize them, to not take their narrative seriously, I think is a huge mistake. I think it's an injustice. And I mean, we have to understand that the way that we look at the FLDS today are how a lot of Americans would have looked at Joseph Smith with concern, with skepticism, with fear, with misunderstanding. Um, and so to me, I think it's actually a really useful lens that historians would mistake overlooking just because we are so like, so um, inherently afraid of conflating fundamentalists with us, right? We have a century of trying to distance the LDS narrative from them. But I think there's a lot to learn there, especially in how this stuff looks on the ground. I mean, I have got to see what this sort of organization looks like on the ground. So Christina, let's just talk about that FLDS for, for a moment. Well, I, I just wanted to really quickly mention that I don't think that that's um, a unique problem with people who are members of the church kind of looking at Mormonism and saying, well, the LDS church is the biggest since so we should just focus on them. Um, I think that's a lot of scholars generally. And that's something that bothers me because can you imagine if Christian studies just focused on Catholicism because it was the biggest? Like there would in no way be a full representation of what it means to be Christian. And so I think that that's a bigger problem um, generally in most fields that the smaller movements that really, you know, when you take all these small groups together, they do have an impact on how the dominant organization works. And so I think that's something that a lot of fields in religious studies deal with. And I think, I think it's something that we're moving away from, but I don't think that's a uniquely Mormon studies or Mormon problem. And I'll just say one last thing that it seems to me that what you guys are talking about is you're making an appeal to um, take something even like the Council of 50. And I say even like the Council of 50 because it's really easy to read these minutes and to read um, reactions to by, by members of the Council of 50, the original Council of 50, as sort of like quaint and kind of cute and like, very, but yet outdated and not take it seriously at all. And I think, I think it is important for historians 
to take this record seriously and to take um, to take what members said about their experiences uh, seriously as well. So there, I mean, there's just a lot. I, I just think that you can approach this through different lenses. One would be like very dismissive. Another one would be, okay, let's let's see what they're talking about. Let's see, and then um, you know, take the idea seriously and place it within the context of their of their times and their experiences. And that's just a much more empathetic way of reading history rather than right. um, we know best. Yeah, and I really appreciate that because, like, for example, uh, the church has this new book out called The Saints. And when there was the discussion by historians who contributed to it, historians that I respect, hearing them um, give arguments to the general body of the LDS church about polygamy was was interesting because they were saying, you know, we have to respect that women wanted this and this was the choice. And I thought, how does that argument apply to our ancestors but not to women now? And and I think it's sort of that double speak that I saw, like with, you know, these gifted historians talking about the minutes. If this rationalization gets to apply to Joseph Smith, I think it should be explored to see if it can be applied to Warren Jeffs. Because Warren Jeffs really did, he, his motivations are similar, his actions are similar. And um, just because you don't know about him doesn't mean it's not true. But I that's that's my appeal is... If you are going to give justification for this kind of stuff, it should, it should, in my opinion, apply across the board uh, to other people who are acting very similarly. So, I right. agree with that, but that's why historical distance is safe. You know, it's it's easy to look at very long time ago and say, "Oh, well, you know, that's that's different." Um, yeah, it, it, historical distance makes things easy. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk really quick about fundamentals, and then we'll let you go, Jedediah, because we're going on a little long. Um, so I'll just briefly say uh, the FLDS functioned similarly. They had councils like this. They they saw themselves as ushering in the millennium. It was uh, actually always very present to them. Um, as we know, it was going to happen during the Olympics, and then it didn't, and then it was going to happen. Uh, I don't know what the the latest one was. But their council functioned very similarly. They they saw it, the lines blurred between church and state, even though it's this this idea of righteous government. So I absolutely see um, the Council of Fifty. The whole structure, the whole ideology is pervasive in that community. And then when we met the Bundys, who are LDS, um, mm-hmm. I'm telling you, like they they're. Th- Theology and doctrine was so completely spot on. It was frightening how um, accurate their interpretations are. And I would say that uh, they understand the government, the current government, and their role in it in a very similar way. And lest you think that they're just acting rogue. I mean, they showed Christine and I documents letters from church officials like LeGrand Richards and government officials, I think up into the 1940s, basically saying, you guys are ordained to this land. You are being called to God by this land. And when you have that sort of stamp of approval as a Mormon, it's hard to articulate the kind of power that that gives you. Mm -hmm. So these, these, these documents that we're talking on, like you said, Jedediah is sort of quaint or whatever, cute little things that, oh, look at, look at that fun little group that they, that fun little club they had. It has present day implications. Christina, yeah. do you want to talk about any of the other groups like, like the yeah. order? 
Um, I just wanted to mention Alex Joseph because he's my favorite because he wore bell bottoms. Um, Don't give away and- too much because we're going to talk about him. Oh, soon. okay. Nope, I'll just leave it there. He was a fundamental who had a council of 50. Well, so that's Christine and I are going to talk about the anti-taxers in the 70s. And you cannot understand uh, this movement, which actually has broader implications outside of Mormonism, but it's inspired by Mormonism. Uh, like the one this, thing I will say is he, he was a, you know, he, he, I don't want to say he was a prophet because he didn't, he, he never really called himself that, but he started a church called the Church of Jesus Christ in Solemn Assembly. And right next to that, he founded the Confederate Nations of Israel, which was a council of 50 that had non-members involved. And he did some pretty interesting things politically with it. And so that, I think that's going to be a good one. Yeah. And, and that's what I'm saying, like, this is why the Council of 50 applies to this podcast because it absolutely is one of those things that you see uh, carried on. And so it's, is it an official in the LDS term? Uh, is it like your friend said at the Sunstone panel? Is it still being practiced secretly? No, probably not. But not officially, wrong. but, but the, the ghost of it, the, the specter of these ideas is absolutely living. I think in, you know, I could talk to some semin- seminary teacher, LDS seminary teacher about the Constitution, and I would be willing to bet you money he's going to parrot off ideas that you can find that originated in the Council of 50. But also, Mitt Romney got a nomination, you guys. How do we explain that? Without the Ill- Illuminati. <laughs> no, Lindsay, the Council of 50 is alive. <laughs> uh, Jedediah, do you have any closing thoughts that you want to say? No, only that this is what a fascinating topic of, you know, discussion. I mean, I, is, is there more to say about, you know, how other Council of 50s operate um, or Councils of 50 operate within the fundamentalist community? Um, are you doing another separate podcast on that? Or is that or is this sort of the end of the discussion? Well, we are going to, on our next episode, we, we wanted to do like a general Council of 50, and then we're going to talk about the anti-tax movement. The most startling thing when we met the Bundys was um, this idea, and I wasn't prepared for it because I knew that they were Mormon, and I knew that that was part of it, but I didn't realize how absolutely... It's as if you could measure faith with a barometer in that mm-hmm. room talking to them, it was oh, yeah. it was set to like high power strangle <laughs> because the story there is their entire movement is influenced by this idea like full stop like and the press is not picking up on that they're seeing they're attributing motivations that they couldn't possibly know right as outsiders but the minute i sat in that living room it like clicked and i I remember I looked at Christina and I was like, what the heck? I, I never saw the Book of Mormon interpreted this way. And she was like, duh, that's what it is. Um, this is the story. The, like the, the, this thinking is so pervasive in these like uh, rural communities where Jedediah, you'd be interested in this. Like we're yeah, so tied to the land. Like the, the Bundy's whole story is Southern Utah Mormons are still so tied to the land and that's the story here. And I wish that we could articulate it in a way that we could get the outside world to understand because the outside world and the press only inflame their persecution complex. But we're really seeing like like a Nauvoo-type attitude playing out yeah. in groups like that. The, the Bundys, 
were 100% the second most Mormon thing I've ever done in my life. And the first is Can with Fundamentalist Women. So that's the level of Mormon we're talking. Like, the Bundys were second only to that. It was so frighteningly familiar. That's what I felt. I like because when I go to the FLDS, I, there's like this barrier where it can be like, oh, that's them. But when I was in their living room having a family prayer with them, I was like kneeling oh. with arms folded. Yeah. Yeah. No, all, all this is fascinating to me because I think we tend to I think we I think historians need to do a better job of making connections here. I mean, we tend to think of the anti-government sort of story originating with polygamy and sort of ending with polygamy in a certain way. And, and yet you have anti-government sentiment, of course, in rural communities over public lands um, and many other issues. Yeah. Uh, and people tend to interpret that as sort of like, well, this is just a, an Americanization, sort of like this is an American story. They're wrapped up in the larger narrative without considering the religious influences, um, especially in Utah and, and the Intermountain West. And so I think that this is something, this is a field of study that is open for investigation is like the what is the relationship for example between like the ending of the 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 polygamy period and and the americanization in the 20th century and the development of sort of this anti-federal feelings uh, in rural rural areas like this is a story that we haven't teased out as well as we should and we certainly haven't teased out the religious influences in that story. Yeah. Um, and we should take you down with us when we go. Cause it wasn't just the family itself. Like when we were, we spent most of the morning in Bunkerville and we tried to talk to people in and right. around the town. And I'm telling you, it's like, and we're talking like LDS, like Mormons, like stake presence and stuff like that. This is the attitude. It's so pervasive there, the land and the government and, and this manifest destiny. Like, so I'll just tell you, like one of the things that we said with, um, to Ryan Bundy, as I said, you know what, Ryan, like I can get on board for government overreach and government corruption. I'm here for it. But you keep talking about this first come first serve, you know, idea and saying that you had this, this land first before the BLM. And what about your father whose ranch is right next to the Paiute reservation? And he held up the Book of Mormon. He said, that one's easy. It says right here in this book, that that uh, the white man would take the land from the Indians, and we did. And it says here that the Indians would fight even though they were losing, and they are. And he spoke with no contempt. There was affection as if we're both on the same team mm -hmm. and we're in this together. And it was just startling for me to see the Book of Mormon that way, but I thought, this this is what it is. Like, this is this is the impact of Mormonism. This is This is what, you know... All of these scholars up in Salt Lake or in their, you know, institutions are not seeing that this is how this doctrine plays out on the ground. And that's why I'm asking my appeal is when historians are talking about that, they are aware that their uh, justifications and their rationalizations for this mm -hmm. 100 years ago are actually fueling movements today. And that's mm -hmm. that's all. That, that's my appeal. Yeah. So anyway. Yeah. Yeah, there are a lot of questions around that that, um, that would be interesting to ask, but including one, you know, to what extent are the Bundys representative of of rural um, sort of Mormon thought on public lands? Yeah, totally. There, yeah, certainly variations there. Um, and I think you can also, 
explore it uh, according to the different regions. So in Nevada, of course, um, mm-hmm. I think you might find different sentiments than you would maybe in southeastern Utah or slightly different manifestations, at least. Yeah. Uh, anti-federal um yeah and it and it does but again i would say that it's very rooted in in mormon history when it when uh because christina and i had to read up on this this idea of nevada you know when did it become federalized how did the land work before then nevada is one of the few states where anyway we can get into this later but i i want to say also it goes down it goes back to what i was mentioning about taking people seriously um in mormon studies the bundies aren't taken seriously and that's fine. That's not fine. But you know what I mean? Like, they're just not taken seriously because they're one family, whatever. But historians have failed to realize that they're one family that represent a movement and they represent a political ideology that is held by hundreds and thousands of people. Yeah. And, th- and that's what I would say. And and again, the reason why we should care is it's being informed by this stuff, you know, the when I talked to Ryan Bundy, he's not stupid. He's very well read. We were talking about the Paiutes and I said, tell me how you make sense of this first come first serve because the Paiutes are not, you know, indigenous to, to the Americas. They're refugees from the slave trade, blah, 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 blah. And he considered it. He had never even heard that before, but he considered it. But he had told me his account. He started reading off some, he was citing some of his information that he'd read about the Paiutes. And I said, oh, you've read Jacob Hamlin. Those are Jacob Hamlin's accounts. And he was like, yeah, I've read about this. And I thought, yeah, the only difference is he's only read Mormon accounts. And mm-hmm. once he was presented with new information, he like incorporated, incorporated that into the into our d- discussion. But I think that that's, that is what I would like to see as scholars to take this more seriously because just because it doesn't impact, you know, the corporate LDS church doesn't mean that Mormonism isn't having impacts in other areas of mm-hmm. the American West, you know? Mm-hmm. Anyway, I could say that point over and over and over and over, and I'm not going to. Got my rant out. <laughs> is there anything mm-hmm. else that you guys want to say on the Council of 50 before I let you go? I just want to comment again that if you read this in the 19th century context and what was happening in the 19th century, not only to Mormons, but in terms of religious innovation and the rise of new religions who had these very distinct ideas for what it means to be a temporal world and a spiritual world and all these, and all these religions that were really kind of disentangling that boundary. The council 50 is not a radical assertion, or at least it's not as radical of an assertion as we make it out to be in the present but if you take presentism aside, um, this makes sense in Mormon history, and it makes sense in American history, and it makes sense in terms of 19th century religious movements. I agree completely. Yeah, I agree as well. Well, thanks so much for coming on, you guys, and talking about this topic, um, what we want to talk about for Council 50, and we're going to talk in more, in more detail about how this impacts other communities. But thanks for coming on tonight, guys. Thanks, Lindsay. Thanks, Lindsay. The song you just heard is called My Disguise by Mikkel Douse. Her album is available for purchase on iTunes or Apple Music. 
Thanks for listening.